Hi everyone, I'm Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, our podcast featuring insights from deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Lion Tree, the global merchant and investment bank. Today, we present a candid conversation with Lion Tree CEO Arye Borkoff. In it, he addresses the current COVID 19 crisis and analyzes how Wall Street, Main Street, and the people in the streets are converging to create a new reality. We also wanted to tell you about a new Kindred Media podcast that we just launched. It's called The Vasey View, hosted by Ed Vasey, a Lion Tree executive in residence. Who served as a British MP from 2005 to 2019, where he interviews the movers and shakers behind the tech scene in the UK and throughout Europe. Search for The Vasey View wherever you're listening. And now, over to REA. Hi, and thank you for joining us today. So, REA, to get things going, How would you describe the phase that we're in right now? We are in the limbo phase of the crisis, or I should say crises, because we started off March for most people in the business environment with the crisis kicking off in mid March. But the crisis has compounded or multiplied, I would say, into at least a three pronged crisis at this point. One is The financial crisis, which I would consider to be the economy more than the markets in terms of unemployment levels and people's well being economically. Two is the health crisis, which is COVID centric, obviously. And then three is the inequality crisis, the crisis of inequality. It's a racial comment, but also a comment on vitriol and hate that seems to be creeping into other areas as well, unfortunately. But ultimately, it's an emotional cry out for a life or death moment, which is a just society with equality for all, or at least treatment that is just and fair for all. I think the crisis has multiplied, even while the financial markets are increasingly robust and business activity is picking up and we're in the middle of a recovery. Obviously, we have, by the way, an election coming up in a few months. So, I think that it's just a very heavy period. Now, I would say that we're in the limbo phase, which means there's a certain tentativeness, effectively, of everyone would love for the crisis to end and everyone to get back to work and socializing and happiness and a lightness of being. But there's definitely a feeling of, well, we're not really ready yet. We haven't fixed our issues completely in any of those areas. So, how can you really jump back into the fray without more of a stable grounding underneath us? And I think that's where the limbo is. It's almost like don't get back out there until we start to put some fixes in place. And that definitely feels like it's stalled and not a lot of optimism around the near term knee jerk fixes that are probably required and will take some thoughtfulness to get to action there. What does leadership look like in this limbo phase? Leadership is really about what's demanded of you at certain moments in time. And I think right now, what is really expected and essential from leadership is to put a go forward plan in place, which solves some of these dynamics for people, or at least to create space and safe space to operate in. 
and for others to participate in fixing them. It's clear, at least for me, that I don't look to one person to get all my leadership from or my insights from, whether it's ahead of the country or governor, mayor. I mean, you take the greatest hits where you can and you try to focus in on putting it into a stew and coming up with a recipe that you can design for yourself and for the people that uh, mean the most to you. I think we're not in a life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness moment right now. We're in a life, liberty, and pursuit of excellence moment right now. We need to get to what that excellence looks like and what the fixes are to allow us to play forward. I think the limbo period is also a bridge between what is a defensive posture and an offensive posture. When you first are hit with a crisis, immediately you kind of check yourself and is everyone okay and safety and healthy? And then how is liquidity and how is business functioning and what's the fluidity look like? Are the systems working? It's all fundamentally defensive. Now we really have to start moving to an offensive posture. Companies are going to be judged that way. The leadership of our society are going to be judged that way. What's the plan? Where are we going? And I'm going to be judged that way. Ultimately, offense comes with risk. Offense is never, and forward-looking plans are never completely safe, but they are going to be thought through and hopefully implemented flawlessly and executed well. And then uh, I will be judged, as most leaders should be judged, on the success or failure of my go-forward plan and whether that risk has rewards and has paid off. I think that's the limbo moment we're in. How do you start to position to play offense? And offense doesn't mean all things are great and there's only V-shaped recovery everywhere and everything's a straight line all the way up. It's going to be, as we're seeing, very difficult to open back up again. It's not easy. We thought about a month ago, it would be easier, at least in areas like New York and other parts of the US, at least, where we thought we were on our way back. Turns out there are more cases in COVID than we thought. We still have a health crisis. There are not a lot of answers. Different states are pursuing different strategies. We used to think that Europe was the black eye of the crisis, and now it looks like Europe's figured it out. We used to think that Israel had the solutions, and now Israel's had a harder time. It's not really a clear-cut way back, whether you are a country or the markets or an industry or a company, you have to know that things are not going to be smooth, but you have to keep moving forward. Based on your conversations, what's your sense of where businesses and leaders are at? Are they still on their back feet, solving problems defensively? Or are you seeing more of them on their front foot, looking at new opportunities proactively? I think we're in the middle of those two scenarios. Most companies that I've spoken to have a reasonably good handle on the health and wellness of their people also have a reasonably good handle on plugging the holes of the worst case scenarios of their business, or they're obviously pursuing restructuring of their businesses if they are structurally impeded for recovery. But not everyone has put on the offensive switch yet. So I think we're in that holding pattern, but you're starting to see signs of it. And that's not just a comment on deal-making or what is possible in the financial markets and IPOs, all of which are relatively robust right now. But in terms of putting the fireburners back into the business, you are starting to see signs of that. Certainly like in the uh, tech platforms, that is all systems go, fintech, payments, gaming, broadband connectivity, really um, doing well right now. But other areas that are events-driven and outdoor-focused and advertising, signs of growth and optimism, 
but not a linear straight up line. It's a zigzag. And that has to come with it, toggling investment and protections and making sure that you're very short-term oriented and close to home. I don't think in the end of the day, it's an easy answer. But I do think we are on our way back. There are also bigger issues to tackle. Unemployment is one which is not going away. While there are signs of job growth, because we are a consumer-driven economy in the U.S., the chance of us getting back to where we were on job growth and unemployment levels at all-time lows is probably not going to happen anytime soon for structural reasons. And then you have, with that, societal issues compounded by issues of inequality and race and representation and fairness. Those issues belong to not just society and governments, but also companies and individuals and leaders to solve. It's a lot at once. If anything, I think this bridge moment between defense and offense and all this connectivity that's been happening probably needs to come with a bit of a pause and a respite to make sure that we're going after the right things. Like I've always said, don't go back to normal. There is no normal, and we probably don't want to go back there. It wasn't just. Now we want to go back to some extraordinary world that has to be for the better of not just ourselves, but our children and next generations. That will take a lot of leadership and a lot of hard work. But I do think we are past the worst of it. I'm definitely realistic about everything, but also bend towards optimism. So a lot's been discussed right now around social justice. How has this enduring conversation about social justice impacted you as a leader? We've encouraged our people to have a voice. If there are peaceful protests to engage in, by all means, get out there. There are other ways that we can create a forum for our employees to express themselves in terms of board representation that we can help with or recruiting or connectivity that we really specialize in. So we are trying to create both an encouraging dynamic of a full meritocracy, which is say what you feel, and as long as it's towards the right outcomes and the right just outcomes that everyone can determine for themselves. And as a company, we're trying to create a vehicle for people to participate in real impact. I always believe the collective is stronger than the individual. So if we can create collective responsibility, then we can also help, again, do our part to change the world, which is a dual track purpose of Lion Tree beyond just profits and deal making. It's also about doing right by people and our community and a broader community. It also goes back to perspective in terms of really trying to break down the walls of what we normally think about as our um, domain expertise. So while we want to keep our competencies close at hand because we do have that to offer, at the end of the day, we are a New York, London, city-centric company. And I would like to think of us as moving away from that to where opportunities exist and where our services are needed. There are deals to be had in the south of the United States, in the middle of the United States, in other parts of Europe, Latin America, and the world. And as long as it's a fair and just society and playing field, we should try to shine a light on uh, people that uh, really need our help and are underserved, even from a company's perspective. And that's kind of what we've always been about in terms of not just helping the large companies today that are established with strong market caps, but also the emerging companies that uh, are going to be disrupting the establishment. Even though it's uncomfortable to see that change, that's what disruption is all about. It's an industry we've been dealing with from day one, which I would also put onto society. 
when change happens, it's not comfortable. People usually resist it. But the velocity and the disagreement and the tension usually ends up being a good thing for a different recipe. And I think that we should respect that and yield to that and encourage it. And so the same way we think about companies and our clients as being bifurcated between established and growth-oriented, we should think about society and our communities and our office locations the same way. What is established today and where can we be in the future that will be the disruptors and the new areas of growth? And we should be thinking about that all the time. What are the key market dynamics in play right now, both financially as well as more broadly? I love the marketplaces because I feel like truth exists when you put all the variables in a pot and no one can be artificially beholden to one variable or or one thought that they end up embellishing to the point of being maybe arrogant, where every variable in the same marketplace, usually you can't ignore the output of that because it represents the mass. And I think macro governs it all, as long as the marketplace is the right marketplace. So what I'm referring to is two marketplaces. One is the marketplace of the financial world, which is the stock market and the bond market. You really can fight it if you want, but there's an argument you can't fight the tape, quote unquote. And so you have to kind of listen to it and wonder what it's saying. And then once you figure out what the market is saying, then you can determine whether you believe it or not. And that creates an opportunity if you have a non-consensus view or a contrarian opinion or a nuanced view versus the market. But first, you have to understand what the market is saying, I think. The other marketplace is not Main Street per se, but like the street. What are people saying that's not tied to their finances, but their belief system and our collective societal obligations? And I feel like you've actually seen people in the streets now fighting for a life or death dynamic of civil rights and fairness, and that can also not be ignored. So I think the truth lies in these extreme marketplaces, the financial markets on one hand, which is all systems go, party continues, it's stimulated by the government capital and markets all over the world, and certainly a lot of other capital, private capital, that wants to solve problems every single day and keep the growth of the economy intact which is very much happening right now in the marketplace financially, with the streets and the message from the streets, which is also truth, which is we are not in a fair and just place right now. We have to fix these things. Everything in the middle is full of biases and agendas and untruths. You can be different from the extreme marketplaces, but then you really have to have a purpose and a view that's well articulated. And then people can get behind that or not. And I love non-consensus views as long as it's logical and progressive and puts in place a framework of future growth. And that's what I'm about, which is really much more loyalty to the future of society than the present. Because the present becomes the past in a blink of an eye. But the future is what you really have to prepare for. That's what our obligation is, is to create a very logical, progressive view of our society, our marketplaces, of the industry we focus on, of what it should look like in the future. And then we have to drive there in a very measured and brisk way. But to get there is really our obligation, not to where we are today. I also realize in perspective that we don't have a lot of time. Emotion's important if it's a catalyst to going forward and fixing things. We have to all realize that we're only here for a a speck of time. There's a great song that I've been listening to, which is Get Together, which is a song out of the 1970s, 
by the young bloods, which is basically like, uh, you know, come on people now, smile on your brother, everybody get together, try to love one another right now. But there's a great part of the stanza that says, we are but a moment sunlight fading in the grass. I really believe that. We have to do what we can while we're here, but we're not here that long, and we have to then pass the baton to future generations, including our children. And so while we're here, don't get consumed by the hate. Use as a catalyst for good and for fixing things. Maybe it's easier said than done in a lot of cases, and there's real hurt out there. But I think it's important to keep in mind the perspective of the fact that our time is limited and there's an arc of life here that we really have to yield to at the end of the day. How do you assess the role politics plays right now? For a lot of us that remember the beginning of this pandemic in March or even early April, there was a great 10-part series on ESPN called The Last Dance about the Michael Jordan biography and legacy. And there was a great line in there that he said when asked about whether he was a hero and a role model and a mentor. He said, listen, I was a basketball player and a competitive basketball player, Michael Jordan said, and I'm paraphrasing. He said, and if I was your type of leader or hero or mentor, great, I'm so happy I inspired you. But if I somehow rubbed you the wrong way or didn't do all the things that you want me to do, so be it. I would encourage you to look for your leadership and mentorship somewhere else. And that's how I feel about politics right now. I don't really believe in a political leader being the solve for all of the issues that I can't control and that I need to be beholden to. I believe that political leaders have responsibility and their words matter. And I'm disappointed with leadership during this crisis, for sure. But I also believe that when you don't find leadership in political circles that you're looking for, create the leadership, find it other places, and then make sure that you cannot be downtrodden. You don't fall down. You keep moving. And I feel like whether you are Democrat, Republican, independent, libertarian, preservationist, progressive, whatever it is, you have a belief system. And I think the political landscape right now is really messy, especially in a time of a crisis. I uh, use the analogy that it's like watching the political debate now in the U.S. at least. It's like watching an American football game or a European football game played in the mud. It's not pretty to watch. And there are a lot of mistakes everywhere. And it's unpredictable about how things are going to end up. And so that is a short way of saying it's not my type of leadership at this moment. So then you have to create those leadership moments with others and impact things in other ways. And also realize that leaders can change. There's a long way to go here. Other parts of the world that didn't have great leadership pre-crisis are showing tremendous leadership during crisis. Think about, let's say, France, for example, in some ways. But again, don't lock it. New Zealand also has done a great job in some areas during the crisis, but don't lock it because things can change. We don't have the full perspective. And when you're dealing with a health crisis, we can't think that we control this dynamic on Earth, is my perspective. The unfortunate part of this moment is that you are actually seeing things rise to the surface that do bond us as a society, which I think is easier to lead through. When you have a health pandemic, if there's one thing that we're all aligned on, it's our bodies and our health and our germs, we're all in it together. We have the same makeup as the human race in that way, irrespective of your job or the color of your skin or your religion or where you come from geographically, your health bonds you together. So when you see moments of a crisis that involve the basic elements of society, those should be the easier moments to lead through because we're all in it together. That's my biggest disappointment is that we haven't been able to channel the commonality card here to get through this together. I think we did for a few weeks, 
But then it gave way to irritation and vitriol and real frustrations in other ways, which does require different leadership formats and different people in some cases. I used to say globalization is no longer an abstraction. When you're dealing with a health crisis, we're all tied together. There are no borders. Now that as we come out of this and play offense, we have to be very, very cognizant of what binds us together and what makes us different, creating a framework where we can all coexist together even when there are differences, and whether the geographic pillars of our framework of doing business and politics that exist in the past will sustain in the future. One of the elements that I think has not yet fully reared its head is geopolitical dynamics and supply chain dynamics and how different countries and different alliances will shift after this crisis from what existed before. And we're watching that very closely. It's a political, geographical, and a business and societal shift that I think is going to happen, especially if there's a change in leadership in the U.S. and different countries. Watch how alliances are formed different from the past. That will also create some uncertainty in the marketplace and the financial markets and with people and certainly visas and travels, fluidity and efficiency and what you think of as your home base versus where you feel comfortable moving to and where you're not comfortable at all. We're moving very far away from a seamless global environment in favor of protected safe spaces that are close to home. You're always looking at things from a very global perspective. What regions of the world do you think we should be paying extra attention to right now? Well, look, there are two real powers. There's China and there's the U.S. The U.S. has afforded a lot of great alliances in the past, and even a healthy relationship with China, that seems to be breaking down, and there will have to be new alliances formed. The English-speaking countries, New Zealand, Australia, U.K., Canada, and the U.S., have some alliances already in place with intelligence sharing, et cetera. And that could be moving into more economic alliances and other trade areas. Europe itself is completely uh, changed. I mean, it used to be that Brexit was all we were talking about. But the UK, and I think Boris Johnson's leadership has been pretty strong right now, actually, around framing what a new deal could look like for future industries. And it's required because the UK is independent and will have to create new alliances. And I'd be very curious to see how the UK comes out of this. But again, I don't think the ground level is stable enough yet to make those predictions. I just think that there is risk to the existing alliances and trade dynamics than uh, what we were used to in the past. And supply chain with Latin America, I think, is also going to be a big area of focus. Mexico is going to be, I think, a big partner for the U.S. going forward. Who would have thought that four years ago during the Trump election campaign? But Mexico could be a really big partner for the U.S. and supply chain. We try to toggle between the big picture and obviously what's close at hand. And I also think that when asked by companies why stocks are going up or stocks are going down, you could say tongue-in-cheek, more buyers than sellers or more sellers than buyers. That kind of encapsulates all the fundamental analysis, all the technical analysis. But at the end of the day, what it really is saying is there's a supply-demand imbalance at the moment over the long term. And there definitely seems to be a supply-demand imbalance right now in the marketplace. There's a tremendous demand for opportunity, a lot of capital in the public market domain, from investors, from SPACs, in the private market, from private equity firms, hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, a lot of sophisticated capital fueled by 0% interest rates, low cost of capital, 
And there hasn't been a lot of products, hasn't been a lot of supply of companies because the companies that have existed for a long time have done well, like let's say the Fangs have been moving up in value and is a high concentration of the wealth of the marketplace already. Where are there new places to put your capital? So the IPO market has been robust. Um, new companies that have growth opportunities, even on the come, are um, getting a lot of attention. There's been a lot of IPOs that we've been involved with. That's interesting. And I think also new areas of innovation, new companies that are going to be formed even privately are going to be interesting to watch right now. New forms of creativity in media, the music space or film or television, new ideas that are going to come out of this area I'm really excited about. Artists and expression of all kinds. I would love to see how that transpires. The ways that we connect the dots going forward, very hard to see. Who would have thought when you shut down the economy that oil prices go negative? But it makes sense. No one would have predicted that factor. Who would have thought that when you're in a prolonged period of isolation and that something sparks the ire of protest, like the George Floyd example, that we flood the streets and protest? Life depends on it. But that makes sense. And so I think there are other things that are going to happen out of this period when you slow the world down and you focus on basic levels of health and equality, that things are going to come out of this differently, but they are going to go forward, not backwards. And I do believe that the human spirit is very strong and no one is going to want to stay down forever. And we are going to start to get back out there on the streets, in restaurants, at events, in musical performances, and people will have to learn to live with risks, hopefully wait for a vaccine, but learn to live with risks, be more adaptable, recognize life's being unpredictable. But now it's about playing offense for companies, for investment, for growth, and for society and ways to make an impact. And that will be the shining light out of this period is that 2020 starts in a very heavy, downtrodden, almost like catastrophic place, but could end up being the inflection point of our new world order, which would be a wonderful thing to look back on and say, we live through this moment and this bridge. Do you see the sort of tempered optimism you allude to as an emerging consensus view? I think it's ever-changing right now. I think it's too early to figure out what is conventional and what is non-consensus. I go back to think about what you can control, what you can impact, what you can influence, and lean into that. Because that's really always available to you. And if you're thankfully healthy and your families are protected and safe and your companies have enough liquidity and robustness to get through this period, then you take on the responsibility of having to do other things and make the changes. And play offense, not just in a narrow business recovery sense, but also in a different way, changing the things that are causing societal ills. I don't think you have to do one or the other, you have to do both. At least that's my philosophy. You have to change things privately, not in the public service way, or maybe in some other other ways publicly even, while you're building your businesses. And I think that is kind of like the Milton Friedman counterculture, right? Which is, we're now at the point where you have responsibility that's thrust upon you beyond just the uh, profits of your business, but it's the safety of your people, it's the diversity of your people, and it's the societal dynamics of how to make things better coming out of the crisis. Otherwise, it'll be a real waste of a crisis. And I believe everyone's character should be lifting themselves up above the crisis moment into the offense. When you choose to play offense, 
you got to call the play before you play offense. And I think when you call the play, just make sure that the pattern of plays that are going to come out are going to be leading you in the right direction, not the wrong direction. And that's the thoughtfulness of the limbo period right now before offense is played. And we can really, really understand what we want to have happen. This is what I expect out of our political leaders, our business leaders, to start to frame out what is the plan. What's the game plan for the rest of the year? What's the game plan for next year, next few years, and how we're going to come out of this in the right way? What is the game plan? So in a recent KinderCast, you had a fascinating conversation with professor and author Jeffrey West. What are some of the takeaways from that that you find especially relevant to this moment? What intrigued me about the interview with Professor Jeffrey West is how to draw parallels between certain living beings that have a finite lifespan, whether they're bacteria, organisms, individual humans, animals, whales, to companies that don't live as long as people on average. The average public company lasts 10 years. And then cities, which seem to go on longer than anything. We talk about cities like New York and London, but think about Jerusalem, thousands of years old. And even when you throw a lot of variables at these cities, like nuclear bombs and some unfortunate cases, they keep going. And so now we are challenged to think about, is the city coming to an end? Because you can work from home and broadband connectivity allows that. Society maybe allows for more. And I just challenge that dynamic because if you could create a safe and secure environment, then I think people are going to want the richness and unpredictability and even diversity and rawness of a city, which seems to have held up over my lifetime and many lifetimes so far. Now, there have been moments in time like the 1950s where there was a rush to suburbia. That could happen. I mean, I certainly think people will move around and make different choices for their families and for educational purposes and leadership purposes, which parts of the world are better situated to protect you and keep you safe. But from a private company perspective or an enterprise like Liontree, I don't have to be governed by one jurisdiction. We can be in many parts of the world, and we should be in many parts of the world. So we should be flexible about where we belong and which cities we belong in around the world. There are opportunities and where we could be safe and secure. And then we can work virtually in some areas and then come to the office in other areas. I definitely believe in connectivity as a core element of the human tissue and DNA, whatever it takes to energize you. If you're home alone or home with a roommate and you've been doing the same thing for three or four months, chances are you're going to want to change that a little bit. If you're in one part of the world and you can actually more easily migrate to another part of the world, maybe you want that experience. I personally believe in a little bit of variety. When I'm in one place for too long, I'd like to see what else is out there. Plus, the community that we operate in at Lion Tree is diverse. It is global. And so being in one place is a bit like ignoring what else is going on in our world. And so I think I have to create the right framework for people to move around. And there's a community that's supposed to be growing out of this period, not just staying static. And so we have to learn new things. And that's part of the curiosity of ideas. I think cities provide that, for me at least, more than remote locations. Although a little bit of both is healthy, but not one or the other. So then the question becomes, well, easy for you to say, can you afford to move around and have the choice of a remote location and a city environment. And let's not talk about individuals, let's talk about companies. The companies that have scale, which is financial wherewithal, lower cost of capital, it goes to my scale players in motion thesis that I've been 
talking about can more easily afford that. Scale, in a lot of ways, is a prerequisite for that financial flexibility, having lower cost of capital, allowing for opportunity and migration, which also is a comment on being global. But to be a scale player with a low cost of capital and having that financial wherewithal to weather the storm of a crisis and to create the most of an opportunity for the employees and the people also comes with an understanding of political environments, geopolitical factors, and uh, where locations are safe and where they present the most opportunity. That is the job of a leader in this day and age to make those adjustments and the calculus to create the right optimal framework of safety and growth, which, as I mentioned, comes with some risk. This time obviously impacts people on so many different levels, regardless of where they are in their career. What do you think this moment says about personal growth and transition? I do believe in the George Washington mantra of you create more strength for the whole if the individual realizes its own fallibility and relative maturity, meaning that it has to end for an individual, but an institution can go on. And I'm a big believer in durability. In some cases, for an institution or a whole company or country to go on, it takes an understanding of different forms of leadership at different moments. And frankly, it's not just about an individual, it's about what the people expect, what the people demand out of their leadership. A lot of CEOs designate their successor or ask the board to designate the successor from the CEO. I really believe that the people should put forward the leader that they think is the right moment for that time. And the CEO can obviously see that happening or make suggestions or adjustments to make sure it happens in the right harmonious way for everybody. But I certainly don't think that the perspective of one person should dictate the next leader. And you've seen the leadership in history completely to be different. Like look at Steve Jobs to Tim Cook and completely different forms of leadership. Both create huge amounts of value. Look at Bill Gates, Steve Ballmer, and Satya Nadella. Completely different forms of leadership doesn't mean value can't be created. But the important thing is that the institution lives on because it becomes adaptable from what the people demand and the rigidity of its purpose can shift. That's why I think cities outlast companies because companies have been very rigidly focused on profits from a certain business or enterprise or division. And if that's the singular purpose, it could break when it doesn't happen. But a city can constantly reinvent itself based on what the people are demanding of its place and of its leadership. And I think companies are right to adapt that. I also think in some cases, the institution being above the person is a problem. Think about think tanks or bureaucracies where the institution becomes the thing and the person then feels like their responsibility is suppressed and absolved by the whole. In that case, it ends up being bureaucratic and nothing really happens in some cases. So I believe that when you deal with societal issues, the individual should rise above the institution and make a big change and move the institution or society forward. That's a responsibility of an individual above a company or above an institution. In other cases, the institution should be more powerful and have more longevity. It depends on what you're trying to accomplish. I think from a business perspective, the institution should rise above the person at certain moments in time and over the long term. I think for changing the world and changing society, it requires real non-conventional activities by individuals or collective individuals above their institutions that have been anchored or tethered to past dynamics and social mores that don't always work. And if you rely on institutions too much for that, you pretty much stand in place with a lot of bureaucracy. 
How would you sum up this period of immense limbo? I do think that businesses are doing better than expected, meaning that business trends are better under the surface and behind the scenes than people would have expected by now, which is a great thing. That being said, it's not a clear path to the promised land either. And the macro issues keep putting more variables on the table and COVID is not solved. And we haven't gotten a lot of guidance out of science and the healthcare experts in a conclusive way. Hopefully that'll change and we're in a vaccine land. But you can't rely on those things at the end of the day. You have to look at the micro environments that you can control and then pay a lot of respect to the macro trends and then try to change them and try to influence them and make the right predictions, realizing we're probably going to be wrong at those predictions. They have to leave open room for variables and self-awareness and self-correction. That being said, you know, you put one foot in front of the other, make sure you're positive, forward-looking, don't get very much anchored to past behavior unless you're taking it forward to change it. Otherwise, it could be wasteful. Now, these are all very easy things to say, hard to execute. And I've had my moments, and I'm sure everyone has during these periods, but I've said I'd like to be judged in two ways around this crisis. One is how I deal every single day with a task at hand when I wake up and how I get through the day. And then two is realizing that the day after the crisis hits or is solved, how I'm looking back on myself dealing with the crisis every single day. And is there a gap there? So you just got to try to keep in mind different moments in time while we're playing it out and know that present is fleeting. Present is fleeting. Past is important to learn from and the future is all that really matters to live in. Trying to make sure that you have respect for those different dimensions of time every single day is a core part of what we do and continue to pursue excellence. That to me is really important. I mean, diversity, inclusion, critical ways to remove biases and create a just playing field. But ultimately, all of us should be going out and pursuing excellent behavior and demand excellence out of our society and our people and our product and try to get closer and closer, which is an asymptote to what is optimal out there and a masterpiece of what society could look like. People will make mistakes. I'll make mistakes. The key thing is correcting and trying to plug those holes going forward and realizing that one person's perspective, while it seems exactly right, could have some deficiencies when you put it in the middle of the broader marketplace and the broader picture. And so there has to be a little bit of room for understanding what could come next that we don't yet fully understand. And that's part of life. As soon as you put your foot on the ground, you can stub your toe, you can take a risk, things can happen. So I think slowly we'll take calculated risks. I believe in the human connective spirit more than just the virtual one. I want a little bit of both. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app. Looking for more insights from Kindred Media? Check out The Vasey View, a podcast hosted by former Member of Parliament Ed Vasey that focuses on tech and media in Europe. 
Or listen to Kinsider, a weekly podcast that deep dives into the biggest stories in media and tech. Search and subscribe to Kinsider and the Vazy View wherever you listen to podcasts.